I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. And what is more modern than millennials? Young people have dumbfounded election experts by not only turning out to vote, but backing Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party in enormous numbers. We're here to find out what drives millennials. I'm Connor Pope, and I'm joined by Progress Director Richard Angel and Open Labour co-editor Jade Azim to discuss Britain's young revolution. Last Friday, Labour MP Jim McMahon put forward a bill to Parliament to reduce the voting age from 18 to 16. Despite the proposal receiving the backing of the Labour frontbench and many MPs delaying their return to their constituencies in order to support it, Tory MPs used up the allotted time for the debate with their speeches against, meaning it did not go to a vote and failed to pass. Writing on the Progress website as part of a guest edit in support of Votes at 16 by young Progress member James Cleverly, Jim McMahon said that democracy should be about franchising people and it must move with the times, evolving to allow young people to affect change on the issues that matter to them most. Richard, let's start with you. What are your thoughts on Votes at 16? I've long been a supporter as a former chair of Young Labour and member of the British Youth Council and UK Youth Parliament. I was a proper geek. I lined them all up in the path. I've long been an advocate of young people having an enhanced say in our political process. And as austerity has unwound, the arguments I used to make then, which weren't liberal ones of enfranchisement, as important as they are, but about young people having a stake in the public services that are provided for them. And I can't help but think that how our public realm might be different if younger people had the vote. Secondly, I think that voting is often a pattern and young people between 16 and 17 are in a kind of organised community broadly of some kind of education. And you could kind of shepherd them along to go to hustings so they can engage directly with the politicians. They're often the toughest of the hustings for politicians, but also make sure they go and use that first vote and then they keep voting throughout their lives. And that would be a positive thing, improvement to our democracy. A lot of people on issues like this said, oh, I've long believed this. And you can never find any sort of background of them having said anything about it before. But actually, while I was researching ahead of our guest edit last week, I found a piece from you on Progress website from 2009 saying that there should be votes at 16. So I think you actually do believe this, don't you? I do believe this, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think it might be one of the first things I wrote for Progress. (laughs) Really? Jade, what are your thoughts on it? (sighs) Well, I think in principle, I'd agree. I can't 
really muster the courage <laughs> much to um, care that much, which might put me on some people's black books. But I think Labour is in a position where it should support it. And when the Tories don't, and you saw that in the debate last uh, week, it makes them look terrible, which is always a plus. So it boosts us amongst young people, which, of course, I'm all the more for. I mean, the, the fact that the Tories talked it out, this seems to be a recurring theme of this podcast now. Every single week, it seems to be the Tories are trying to block some sort of change that Labour have brought to Parliament just because they simply don't have the numbers to do anything about it. It really does show the government kind of not being able to win people over which when it comes to this issue particularly, I think is astonishing, considering that it's so obvious that 16-year-olds shouldn't have a vote. What's your view, Connor? (laughs) Tell us why you think that. I think that over time, especially with the last Labour government, we have moved as a society to a place where 18 is considered the cut-off point between childhood and adulthood. If you look at things such as uh, the smoking age, that went up to 18, but also things like full-time education, that went up to 18 as well, and that's only come through over the past couple of years. I think to then go in the opposite direction with this would be a really odd thing to do when as actually as a society we're starting to agree on, on an age where you become an adult, and that is 18. So you think hard and fast rule, everything should be 18? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, the arguments against tend to be like you can get married at eight, uh, 16, but that is only with consent of a parent. Or in Scotland. Or in Scotland. <laughs> Very important part. We've got good Scottish listeners. You know that from the ratings and the reviews. Or, or, you know, or people joining the army at 16, but you can't be in kind of proper service Combat role. Uh, until, until 18. And that people pay tax at 16 but actually with full-time education being pushed up to 18 that is actually a really really small number and frankly I don't think it would be that much of a you know disservice to the treasury if we went well let's let's mean that people under 18 don't pay income tax I'm fine with that if no representation without taxation or whichever way around that is is your big ideological position then I'm happy to kind of go away and say well 16 year olds don't have to pay tax but I don't think there is a good enough argument there to say that they should be able to vote. And I have a feeling that a lot of people are basically saying that they do support it without having any history of supporting it in the past just because it sounds progressive and it doesn't cost any money. There there is a tendency of that in our politics at the moment to find something that sounds good and will endear you with the masses while costing the country no money while there still is uh, limited funds available. You know, I think young people play such a huge part in our society. I think the way they conducted themselves in the Scottish referendum more than proves the case for their engagement in our politics. Had they been involved in the Brexit referendum, maybe we wouldn't have seen not just the outcome that we got, but a very different sense of the discussion about talking to the future rather than people's fears of the past. And I think that that would have been a better situation. But I can't help but think our public realm would be more complete and less skewed towards some of the older voters uh, if younger people were just as a basic enfranchised and all the things you could then do to encourage them to cast that first vote. I'm still slightly unconvinced, but I think we'll move on there. But if any listeners do have strong views on Votes at 16 or think there's a point that we've missed there, do get in touch and we'll take the discussion a bit further on Friday's show. Here's how you can get in touch. We want to hear from you. Each week, Connor and I do an extra show. So tell us what you think of this week's show, the discussion and the podcast overall. Send your thoughts and feedback. But we also need you to subscribe, rate and review this podcast. It's useful to us, but it's the only way this podcast gets to new listeners. So subscribe today, rate our podcast and leave a review. Each week we give out a prize for the most interesting review that's left for us. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. And this week, the most interesting review gets a copy of Gordon Brown's memoir. So review today. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Age is the new predictor of how people will vote in Britain. According to YouGov, over 60% of people under 30 supported Labour in June's general election, while less than 30% of over 60s did. And while a boost in the numbers of young people voting saw the highest youth turnout for 25 years and turnout among older voters fell, the fact that more older people than young people still cast their ballots effectively delivered Theresa May a small victory. Writing for Labour List last month, today's guest Jada Zim wrote, The rise of a new class heralds a new ideological era. A new era shaped by an entire demographic with an ideology shaped precisely as a result of being devoid of capital. We often talk about the youth's disdain for capitalism, but there is a serious question to ask in why this generation, without capital, should have faith in capitalism. And if so, whether the behaviours of this generation will be the very root of a new economic settlement. So, Jade, are young people traditional socialists? <laughs> um, it's not about ideology, it's that they're not traditional at all. And I don't think sophologists have actually understood what drives them, what drives their political behaviour. And we often talk about left, right. We often talk about the manual working class versus the middle classes. It's that this is an entirely brand new demographic, essentially a brand new class with brand new political behaviour, entirely born from that lack of capital. So they go to university sometimes, they gain all this social capital that shapes their you know, social liberalism in many ways, but then they have no capital, that, that it's lost in translation. They spend quite a bit on tuition fees and then they go on to see no actual material wealth gained from it. Mm. And that has an obvious effect on how they vote in the future. I think we'll, we'll come back certainly to the issue of tuition fees in a bit, but I do think that it's really interesting to see that the party divisions between the age brackets is so stark when actually if you look at the economic beliefs of young people, for instance, they're actually not that hugely different from any other age bracket. And 
And overall, they're probably kind of slightly centre-right. This seems like a... And there's a real danger their sense of collectivism is reduced, isn't it? The idea that collective welfare NHS-style solutions are things that they opt for feel wrong for them instinctively, which presents challenges potentially down the track. So do either of you buy into this idea of a culture clash where maybe it's about young people being more socially liberal and older people being more socially conservative? Or is it a bit more complicated than that? I think we put too much emphasis on that culture clash. It certainly exists, but it's more that, as I said, they don't have a stake in society and the ballot box is one way to vent the anger at that. Why would they see the Tory party who have increased their fees, who don't put any money into the housing market, that they see that their parents did have those public services that are now essentially not public anymore? Why would they vote for that party that gives them no stake, no promise? So they're very much pushed towards Labour's promise of more fairer economic settlement. I think what's interesting about the piece, many good pieces in it which we'll put on the podcast notes for people to make sure they've had a read as well, is where you kind of liken your background to Sadiq Khan's, very much starting in that kind of son of a bus driver upbringing, but unlike his generation, I think you say here, unlike Sadiq's journey, me and my peers with similar journeys, will build our social capital, but are very unlikely to procure capital itself, be it money, housing or other tangible wealth. We're yet to really know whether that's true, but there's a very clear sense that that will be. And I think that's really preying with people and a sense that if they don't say something now, that they're going to basically be trapped in that future going forward. One of the things that I think is interesting about this is that Deborah Mattinson, the brilliant pollster formerly for Gordon Brown, her organisation Britain Thinks, did some work on Londoners in 2014 and predicted three types of Londoners. The thrivers that were doing brilliantly in our city, the outsiders who lived in the kind of donut ring around the side who didn't really feel like Londoners. But she pointed out this group that were called the survivors and very much it was graduates, I think we're particularly talking about graduates here in your piece, but graduates who have come to London working really hard. And what was interesting between the thrivers and the survivors was the thrivers symbolised what was great about London, going to art galleries, going to dinner, the theatre, walking in parks. The thrivers felt absolutely stressed at every point by the commute to work, the housing market, renting, working in kind of modern sweatshop with loads of computers in a really sweaty, horrid office. The whole thing felt very pressured. And I think that sense of it's been simmering for a while. And maybe Deborah's research came that bit too early or didn't get listened to sufficiently. And that boiled over in 2017. Yeah, I mean, you can also refer to the BBC's class survey that came out a few years ago, where there was a sort of new affluent worker. And I guess it's potentially a category that you might fall into when you become a graduate. But again, they do not have assets. I might find myself in a very middle class environment. I work for a charity. I hang out at Progress and (laughs) (laughs) Parliament and with political friends. But at the end of the day, I don't, I'll probably never have a house. I'm probably not going to be able to get married and settled until, you know, my 60s by the sound (laughs) of it. So where does that leave me? And where should I vent that anger? Who do I blame for that? And essentially it has, for about 30 years, Labour and Conservative governments haven't addressed the market imbalance that's entirely intergenerational unfairness. I think that's a really good point. I think, you know, about 20 years ago, we had this sense of feel-good capitalism, Mm. that people could actually have a bit of money that they could spend on stuff that wasn't their rent or travel or whatever. They could spend it on fast food 
or clothes or whatever. And now, actually, we've seen this strange shift, which in terms of the way that those big companies operate, actually, most people, you know, mine and Jade's age in our 20s, even if we're not on a particularly well-paying job, can still afford fast food every now and then through an app or to buy some clothes online. But we can't get our foot on the housing ladder. Rent is taking over so much of the take-home salary that we have as as well as travel. And actually, the older generation also have an economic kickback, which is that actually the feel-good capitalism, in a sense, for them has dissipated. Because if you go down the high street, actually, all of the shops have closed down except for the pound shop or whatever. So actually, for them, there is a kind of opposite sense that they've lost this thing that they had 20 years ago, whereas young people have it. And young people see the good things that the older generation had 20 years ago, but namely the kind of more institutional feel-good elements of capitalism that they no longer have. And I think that might be where the big generational shift comes here because the Conservative Party appeals to one element of that and the Labour Party kind of appeals to another element. I think the asset versus income thing is really important. You know, if you look at what the last Labour government did, until the crash, it basically held down the gap between rich and poor in income incredibly well. Considering what was happening internationally, it was phenomenal. What it didn't do was when you started in 97 with some assets, they got worth more. But if you had no assets, you still had no assets at the end of that time. It tried with asset-based welfare, both the Savings Gateway and the Child Trust Fund, to rectify that imbalance. The Tories got away with both of those systems very quickly, which I think was pernicious and unnecessary for a variety of reasons that we could kind of come back to. But that then still remains this challenge. The bit that I think that we've got to ask very deep questions about for people joining the housing ladder is that your kind of feel-good capitalism for some of those young people they don't sometimes the way our parents generation might have gone without for a bit they didn't go down to go back up so they almost move out of their parental home they want their student digs to be as good they must be en suite they must be decent catering downstairs they then go to a, a house and they want to live in zone one or two in London, and then they want to kind of buy a house straight after it, and almost be exactly the same standard from their parents' home through to their first home. Whereas the situation I found myself in is I got into a silly amount of debt at university, and my mum, thankfully, happened to be remortgaging her house at the time, could pay that off, but the minute I graduated, I got my first salary and just started paying her back. And then I realised I could kind of live without that money, so I then just gave it to my dad to kind of take it out my salary and eventually some years later got on the housing ladder but it was kind of almost seen as kind of sneering the idea that, that you might have to go out or, or have cut your cloth slightly differently if you want to invest in that future but that is what generations before us did they they saved up and I'm not saying it's not difficult <laughs> I mean, it is very difficult. And it's quite interesting what Connor initially said about the experience economy. We're often taking the mick out of for, you know, avocado toast <laughs> and eating out. And, oh, gosh, they could save up for a house if only they didn't like have that meal or that, you know, <laughs> that latte. I mean, the reason we spend whatever money we have left on those things, is because we know we're not going to be able to invest in assets. We're not going to be able yeah, to own absolutely. a house. So we might as well go out with friends because if we don't, we're just going to be sulking at home at like the terrible state of affairs. So yeah, okay, we might have an extra cappuccino, but that's all we can have. Um, so I'm now showing my age, basically, <laughs> being eight years older than you two or something like that. I am so, uh, fundamentally a different generation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all, all we have is our... Starbucks because, uh, well, 
we don't have houses. I think for context here, we should also bring in the fact that if anything ever goes wrong in the office, Richard will blame it on millennials. <laughs> it doesn't matter whether it's run out of paper in the printer or he can't find a pen. It's always the fault of the millennials. And he's completely Some bought things in. are actually the fault mm. of the millennial. Bought into this right-wing Tory press. Croatian Why don't you pick up a phone? Stop texting people. <laughs> Sometimes you need an immediate answer and you have to call them, particularly if you're communicating with somebody who's not a millennial. <laughs> Rant over. Well, I mentioned at the beginning the differential in turnout. And actually, what we saw was a, a huge drop in the number of older people voting this year as a result of Tory promises on things like the dementia tax. And so there is a possibility there that actually there is a way for Labour to win back support among the over 60s who generally do turn out in much greater numbers and could actually deliver Labour a much bigger victory. My question for you two is, do you think it is possible to appeal to that generation without, in your manifesto, essentially building in intergenerational unfairness? I think it is. The clever thing about Labour's manifesto in 2017 was it aligned economic security and the nation's security. But that coalition unravels from the minute that Corbyn goes to Glastonbury and, of course, says, actually, I'll get rid of Trident anyway, and that that was a key part of us getting 40% of the vote. The Labour MPs were able to bring Labour's traditional vote, and Corbyn was able to top that up significantly in that way, and it was that unique coalition. And what, of course, that meant when the Tories had an actively voter-repellent manifesto for those older people, they could look over at Labour and be essentially reassured that either not turning up, which quite a lot of older people did, or even trialling voting Labour in that election was okay and relatively consequence-free. It seems unlikely, and it seems now that the kind of current leadership have really taken charge, that that coalition won't be in play because we won't be promising the nation's security alongside the economic security. So I think it is possible to make that play for it. But the foundations of it have got to be economic security and the nation's security. I think you need to appeal to parents and uh, grandparents and say, this is security for your children that you need a stakeholder society for them that you enjoyed. We don't threaten the society that you enjoyed. We want to extend it onwards to your children and we want them to enjoy the benefits that you did. That they should have the public service, they should have university, they should have access to good jobs and a housing market. And if you want to pass those down as much as, you know, ever inherited wealth you have, but also a fair society, you want to pass that down to your children, vote Labour. Do you think it's worth continuing to kind of prioritise young people's votes, though? I realise that is part of a kind of wider argument. But do you think maybe at the core of it, Corbyn and, and the Labour Party this year surprised a lot of us by actually prioritising getting young voters turning out? And it worked a lot better than a lot of us imagined. Do you think that that should kind of carry on, do you think? Yes. So long as we can retain and increase turnout, I think we might be a bit complacent if we don't make sure that they turn out in the same numbers or higher numbers and we make sure that they can trust us to fulfil this promise this time. There is a, a risk that uh, we won't be able to sustain those levels and it might revert back to what it was before where we only had 40% turnout among young people who supported Labour by 70%, um, which obviously is not enough to get us over the mark. This time it did. We need to make sure that we retain that level of support. And we mentioned this earlier, but I thought maybe we could talk about it a bit more now. Tuition fees are a very accepted policy within the uh, Labour Party now, I think. But do you guys think that it's a policy worth sticking with, abolishing tuition fees entirely? I don't think it is. I think it's offering 
a false hope to people. And I think offering false hope is worse than offering no hope. Ultimately, when you've got public funds available, you should make a decision as a social democrat whether those funds are about extending opportunities or entrenching those who already have them. And it seems to me that £11 billion is a lot of money. It's new money. And it broadly going on people who have decided that they can already afford to get to higher education doesn't seem to me to be the priority to make it. The unpopular point that doesn't get pointed out all the time is that every time tuition fees go up, more places get available at university, more young people take up those places, and they're disproportionately from working class backgrounds. And that's still bearing out even under 9,000 fees. There's particular groups, I think Bangladeshi, Afro-Caribbean and people from African backgrounds that are really disproportionately losing out that we could sort that out. But I would have preferred that 11 billion of new money to have gone on reversing the benefit cap in the last manifesto, to have gone on extending a kind of what Jim Murphy was trying to do in Scotland of a almost like a student loan for those who don't go to higher education to buy their transport, their uniform, their tools for doing an apprenticeship or starting a business and taking that non-academic route but still investing in their own future, currently putting all that money in those who essentially are going down a privileged route of higher education and doing so little for those who don't, I don't think is a social democratic thing to do. I, in principle, agree with no tuition fees. I would. (laughs) Getting a letter for £49,000 was just absolutely hilarious. (laughs) But if I were to prioritise it, I would like to... So, for instance, when universities were set, set... was it was stated that yeah you can increase your nine thousand pounds fee however the condition would be that you increase your access that just hasn't happened at the top universities um like i went to durham and it's got considerably worse i don't think they should be allowed to have those fees if they're not increasing their access what i would like to see i i think we should support at least reduce tuition fees but i also think we should prioritize grants we should prioritize pushing universities to increase their access so so long as there's funding for widening participation so long as there's funding for grants that's where i would prioritize i think andrew donis has made this point really well what universities were getting per head for a degree pre the nine thousand fees was about seven thousand six hundred a year through a combination of what students were paying and what the state was topping it up with they got this huge boost to nine thousand a year unlike all of the rest of the public sector and they seem to have put it into higher salaries for higher earners and into better buildings. Little of it has gone into improving the student experience, the outcomes, and almost none of it seems to have gone into the bursaries that could really incentivise the groups, either from their immediate local area who are missing out on higher education, or the people who do exponentially well but aren't for some reason going to those universities. And that's where they've got to focus the money and the resources. And I see no excuse for them to do it, because unlike elsewhere in the public sector, they've been getting more money per year per student, whereas you look at the health service, local government, etc., it's been cutting and sometimes quite effectively university needs that incentive to innovate it's incredible that there's no accountability either i mean look at uh, david lammy's oxbridge investigation they weren't even asked the colleges of oxford and cambridge weren't even asked to reveal their data there should be an absolute obligation to and if if the data is worse than it was you know five ten years ago there should be implications for that you should be held up to a good standard and be told how can you charge these fees and not have anything to show for it because even if the fee isn't coming from the public sector in any way the borrowing is and it does therefore appear on the treasury's accounts it is still the state aiding higher education to operate 
in this way. And they clearly have a privileged route through Hefke and others in terms of how they get other funding, unlike some of the private universities. So you know, they've got to open up their books. You're absolutely. absolutely right on that. And we've got to be really strong that they've got to be investing in their future. Mm-hmm. It's good for their brand. It's good for their teaching. But it's actually overall good for the student experience. And they've got to contribute a wider thing to society than give privileged people a great opportunity. I went on a lot of protests against 9K fees back in 2010. I was in a police kettle on, I think, three occasions, which wasn't a particularly positive experience. But I completely agree with what Jade says about the priority needing to be grants and making sure that there is access that way. Actually, after the general election in our first Progress magazine following the election, we had uh, Anoush Chakalian from The New Statesman, Georgia Gould, who's now the leader of Camden Council, and a few years ago, before this kind of discussion about intergenerational fairness really took into the mainstream, wrote a brilliant book called Wasted um, about young people. And in both of their pieces in that magazine, they brought up the fact that tuition fees being abolished was a really big driver of that young people vote in everyone that they spoke to. And you know, while I would essentially keep tuition fees just because I think that is too much money to spend on one thing. And, you know, Jade, you were saying, like, maybe we could reduce it. And unfortunately, when we had that position in 2015, it didn't actually see the big boost in turnout that we wanted to. Yeah, yeah, the the, the microwave (laughs) policy. And that is a real shame because actually we were speaking, me and Richard were speaking to someone the other day who pointed out that actually if you wanted to make childcare free, for every family up until the age of three, I think it was, that would cost billions of pounds less than it would to abolish tuition fees. And then obviously you could just spend the rest, if you want to spend 11 billion on something, you could spend the rest of that on reducing tuition fees. My concern is twofold. One is that actually the Labour Party at the moment doesn't really talk about prioritising funds. They just see anything that they can spend money on and believe that that money can be spent. And the second is that that wouldn't have the same electoral impact as the tuition fees pledge would, which is a shame because that is what I would like to see, but I'm not sure that it would have the same kind of impact at the ballot box. I think you're right. One of the things that causes me to reevaluate my own position on this is being on the doorstep. And I live in Ilford North, West Streetings constituency, and an overwhelming proportion of our community, but particularly disproportionately the Labour vote, comes from the Asian community. And I think the Mosaic Code is Asian attainment. And it is literally a group of people who you know, define themselves by how they think education is the root out of the situation that their families often arrive to the UK in and believe that is about social mobility. And they very much feel that tuition fees is counter to that. And I think that's interesting. And, you know, as somebody who wants to align security for people who can find themselves at the bottom for often no fault of their own with aspiration, that's something that I want to listen to quite heavily. But equally, I come back to this point of it can often be really regressive to put money in the wrong places. And I spoke this weekend at Labour Students Plitter Weekend, and I was on a panel about what Jeremy Corbyn should do in his first 100 days. And one of the things I said is he should launch a equalities commission like lots of local government has done and appoint a social mobility czar around the cabinet table because we, we should align reducing inequality and increasing social mobility together. It's not one or the other. But crucially, every time we come up with a good cause to spend money on, we should just check, does it redistribute wealth from the rich to the poor or the poor to the middle classes or the rich and I think this is one that fails that test. I do think speaking of microwaves we didn't have an offer that incited young people in 2015 we just didn't. I was didn't I was, incite anybody. 
No, and I was part Ed of the Miller fandom. Didn't look excited at any point. <laughs> I feel we should also um, we should also clarify the the microwave comment, which was uh, David Axelrod, the U.S. political strategist who was hired by Labour Party in 2015, who afterwards said that the Labour Party's manifesto was vote Labour and win a microwave in terms of the giveaway offers that we were giving to people. Yeah, I mean, I was on campus in 2015 versus quite often in Orford Norfolk in 2017. And in 2015, when I worked a bit with Bite the Ballot, it was really impossible to excite people. I was I was very much in a bubble of the Miller fandom and <laughs> sort of um, being obsessive with Labour. So I didn't I didn't quite have that perspective. But when I was like, yeah, yeah we're, we're going to reduce fees to £6,000 or whatever it was. No one cared. No one did. So, yeah, it, it is quite a testament to the 2017 manifesto. Radicalism works quite often. And to have those big ideas like abolishing tuition fees and societal transformative changes, it matters that we have those policies. How we go about uh, implementing them in the next election is beyond my thinking. But I do know that we need those big picture ideas and... For that reason, I would, in an ideal world, be in favour of abolishing tuition fees. I think that's a good place to stop. We need to finish <laughs> that discussion there. But if you want to take part in this debate at home, email us at office at progressonline.org.uk, tweet us at progressonline, or leave us a comment in a review on iTunes. And as always, don't forget to subscribe and rate. Every Tuesday, Connor asks a political pub quiz question, which is then answered on Friday's follow-up extra show. If you've answered political pub quiz question over the last few weeks and have won a mug but haven't yet received it, I have good news. It will be arriving soon. We've just been waiting on the delivery of some cardboard boxes, which I can confirm are now in the office. Way. And the mugs will be coming out. But my question this week is, which constituency has only elected two Labour MPs since 1945. Now, to clarify that, that is only two MPs since 1945, and they've both been Labour. So, do you have any idea what it is? No. <laughs> you which, never get it right. Which constituency has only elected two Labour MPs since 1945? Yep. But if, Oh, I know. All right, well, don't say it, obviously. You can tell me off podcast, and I'll tell you if you're right. If you do think that you know it as well... Send your answers to at Progress Online or at Connor Pope on Twitter or email office at progressonline.org.uk and you could win a Progress mug. So we need to wrap up now, but we've been delighted to have Jada Zim joining us today. Me and Connor will be back on Friday to respond to your comments, dish out some prizes and Alison McGovern will be back to join us with a very special guest next week. been listening to the progressive britain podcast with me alison mcgovern with richard angel and connor pope the music was when in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons and many thanks to the brilliant caroline crampton who produced this podcast ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.